And so working with this patient population involves a high degree of collaboration in which you have to let the patient lead. Uh, the patient will tell you um, how they are doing, how they are coming along with your pacing program, how they're coming along with other items that you may suggest uh, in order to help them conserve energy, support metabolism, support hemodynamic responses. Um, and uh, you have to be ready for feedback because the patient will tell you if it's working or not. The, the last thing the person who's living with post-exertional malaise needs is a clinician who tells them what's good for them. Okay. That's hard. Well, that's, that sort of gets away from this whole sense of uh, the clinician being in charge. And yes. um, you need to be sitting next to the patient rather than sitting sort of figuratively sitting in, in front of them. Welcome back to In the ED Now, a podcast that makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Griffith, the EDDPT. Don't miss today's episode. We're talking to Dr. Todd Davenport about long COVID and post-exertional malaise. Here's exactly what you need to know when one of these patients that suffers from this diagnosis comes into the emergency department. Lots of great takeaways on exactly how your approach should be to best support this patient population. Thanks for listening. You're in the ED Now. Welcome back to In the ED Now, a podcast that makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Griffith, and I'm really excited to have me today, Dr. Todd Davenport. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Rebecca. I really appreciate it. Well, I really appreciate having you here. First thing I'd like to ask you to do is just tell us like three things about you that you think people need to know before they hear this episode. Oh, gosh, I didn't study this question. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know. I, I'm a, I shoot myself, I shoot my mouth off on, on social media quite a bit, uh, on, on X or Twitter or whatever we're talking about, uh, with, with that now. Um, let's see, I'm, I'm on faculty at University of the Pacific, which is in Stockton, California. Um, and also do some work with Kaiser Permanente's residency and fellowship programs. Uh, I'm a scientific consultant for the Workwell Foundation, and I'm also the chair of Long COVID Physio. I think that's two. Um, and then I don't know, maybe the third thing is I like to be outside a lot. So um, in, in chatting with you just before the, the show here about Colorado, uh, it just seems like there's a lot in common with Northern California, just being outside for, for, for us for most of the year um, in, in shirt sleeves, really being, being able to camp, fish, hike, and backpack and do what we want. So. Well, it's so crazy because right now it's what, it's like November 16th and it's like 72 degrees outside here in Colorado. Yeah, that's exactly what we have here in Northern California, probably until just about Christmas. It rained yesterday for us, which is so weird. Like we didn't know how to act. We could weird. use some kind of precipitation. It's getting pretty brown out there. So tell me why you're here, because we are going to talk about something that some people think is controversial. You and I both know not controversial and that more physical therapists need to be pulled into the loop. We're going to talk a little bit about long COVID. Mm -hmm. We are going to talk about long COVID. Long COVID, uh, infection-associated chronic conditions, uh, myalgic encephalomyelitis. These are, these are all conditions that, that, that have a, a strong component of what we call post-exertional malaise. Um, it, it, not everybody with long COVID obviously has post-exertional malaise, but the literature is showing somewhere around 55 to 65% of people do. And so post-exertional malaise or post-exertional symptom exacerbation, as sometimes it's called, um, is a really kind of unique situation. Um, so for people who don't know what that is, like, what is it? So, so post-exertional malaise is 
worsening of symptoms, usually 24 to 72 hours after an exertion. And it doesn't have to be a physical exertion. It can be a cognitive exertion oh. or an emotional exertion. Um, so things like paying your bills or trying to follow along on social media uh, or watching TV. Um, so those, those things can trigger this. And, and so it's really unique because it's a delayed response. Um, it's, so in other words, it's not just fatigue. It's not that your eyes get tired or that your brain gets tired or that your body gets tired and that you rest with it and then you're good to go. Um, or you, you, you take, you take, take a nap, have some coffee, uh, and, and you're, and you're ready to go again. It's a whole bunch of different symptoms ranging from deep, profound kind of bone aching fatigue, uh, widespread body pains, cognitive dysfunction, sometimes called brain fog. Um, you know, the brain fog may be, may be uh, associated with limited short-term attention and memory. Um, there's sleep disturbances that go with this. Um, it, you know, uh, problems with digestion, gut motility, chest palpitations, uh, shortness of breath. Um, so it, again, we're not talking about just being tired or just something that goes away quickly with, uh, with just a little bit of time to recover. So if I were to make an analogy that I feel like physical therapists could maybe understand a little bit better, it's sort of like delayed onset muscle soreness for the entire body that happens two days after a workout. Yeah, that's it. And, and there's a prolonged um, recovery time. So I think the best way to characterize post-exertional malaise and differentiate it from fatigue is uh, post-exertional malaise is an impaired activity recovery response. And, and we see this in, on, on two-day cardiopulmonary exercise testing. So let me, let, me, let me kind of break that down a little bit. We, so, of course, you have a maximal cardiopulmonary exercise test, which we all remember from PT school. Mm-hmm. Some of us did it <laughs> and remember what it felt like. Um, so, what, so what we do is we use the first cardiopulmonary exercise test um, as a way to get a baseline of a patient's function. Uh, physiological functioning, as well as a stressor, standardized stressor to induce post-exertional malaise. And so then we come back on the second day of the two-day cardiopulmonary exercise test, and we measure then uh, the physiology of the post-exertional state. And in response to this physiological loading, what we see is uh, some very interesting things that happen. So the first interesting thing that we see happen is that the, uh, the patients with, with infection-associated chronic conditions, like myalgic encephalomyelitis, which is my, my, my primary research background, they do not reproduce their cardiopulmonary exercise test from day to day. So normally, if you're deconditioned, you're able to perform the same on two days. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how we, how we know cardiopulmonary exercise test data is worthwhile and works, right? Yeah. Is that, is that you have this reproducibility, but people with infection associated chronic conditions often do not reproduce on the second day. And it's not associated with effort. So in other words, the second day criteria are met for maximal test, but yet people have a reduction in their, particularly the volume of oxygen they consume and workload. So that's the first interesting thing. The second interesting thing is that all of the all of these findings occur around the ventilatory anaerobic threshold, which is kind of the point at which your uh, aerobic energy system stops stops working efficiently. We see an early onset of anaerobic metabolism and at a lower volume of oxygen consumed and a lower workload. So the thing that's notable about this is that you can't fake your ventilatory threshold. 
uh, your yes. hammer. I mean, that would be that would be intense if you could. Like you can't fake it. Like you like you. I don't know how you would fake it. So you can't fake it. So it's either there or it's not. Yeah. So 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 what's relevant about this is that we all function at or below our anaerobic threshold because if we cross our anaerobic threshold, we start to lose our breath. Right. That talk right. test that we always talk about. Yeah. Um, that is sort of our functional ceiling for comfort with daily activity. So imagine now you have this up and down waxing and waning effect on your functional daily capacity to do your activities of daily living. So one day you're able to do kind of more work than the next day. And you have all of these symptoms uh, characteristic of post-exertional malaise. So we, we sort of really have nailed down the clinical presentation, but then also pieces of the underlying physiology uh, we're starting to get a better handle on. Okay, so I've got to ask, because if you just read on Twitter, it just sounds like people are making this up. And so it's all in their head. Yeah, well, it, you have people that say, well, you know, this is deconditioning. Well, obviously it's not. So we, we have the cardiopulmonary exercise test data to say that this is an impairment in metabolism that is not consistent with deconditioning and is associated with an impaired recovery response. Um, and then you have folks that kind of just say, well, um, look, this is really distressing. And I started thinking differently about my, my signs and symptoms. And, you know, those positive thoughts help me heal. And I'm not sort of saying, suggesting that we, we should induce panic <laughs> or fear. But at the same time, there's a, there's a legitimate problem with metabolism that's underlying all of this uh, that's going on. So there's nothing sort of mysterious about this, you're not going to fix your aerobic metabolism through thinking happier thoughts and making for happier mitochondria. Um, it is totally, it is totally reasonable that, you know, there's some mitochondrial dysfunction that can happen with stress and so forth, but that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, I mean, I do want my mitochondria to be happier. Yeah. Like who doesn't want happy mitochondria? We want those little beans to be as happy as they can be, but that's not going to fix this problem. Um, yeah, and so um, that's what you see. I was just told to uh, positive think her way out of breast cancer this week as well. So I, I can see that this is not the approach we want to take. And I think as physical therapists, like when we think about this and we're like, it's deconditioning, they just need exercise. Everything's fixed with exercise. I mean, I work in the ICU, the emergency department. Activity does a lot, right? It makes a lot of people better. And graded exercise tolerance, all of that usually helps people. But that's not the case here, right? No, not at all. In fact, what holds the whole graded exercise hypothesis together is that people's systems have the capacity to adapt. So if you think about it, you know, when we do exercise, um, we're, we're sort of stressing the system, we're sort of breaking it down, and in so doing, we're inducing uh, a response, right? And we're inducing this response where then the system builds up so it can be more resilient to a future, uh, to a future bout of exercise. So that's sort of what's, what's happening. Um, and in people with infection-associated chronic, chronic, chronic conditions that have post-exertional malaise, we're not seeing that plasticity in the system. So we can't oh. assume that that's there. Uh, so now when we're adding exercise on to this system that cannot respond, we are just breaking down without building up. Got it. So instead of it being like plastic, like a rubber band that you can stretch it and it bounces back or bone, like the wolf's law where more bone remodeling builds stronger bones. That's not the case here. And what we're actually that's doing it. is damaging them. That's it. We're, we're using up all of those substrates and in a way that the body is impaired in replacing them. 
So we're kind of robbing from the empty cupboard. Yeah, in a lot of ways. And so it really, I think this is, this is a, this is a space that's challenging for physical therapists yeah. and interesting for physical therapists because it's a, it's a disease that I've said breaks all the rules. It breaks the rules of what we thought we knew about how the body responds to loading. And I feel like if I were a physician and somebody said, I can't walk very far, I can't stand up very long, I'm tired, I can't do my job, then my first response would be like, gosh, we need to send you to a physical therapist, which I love that because that's a very functions-based approach. It's really geared towards getting that person's life back. So what is it that we're supposed to do? So... So with this particular condition, what we think is that less is more. Okay. Uh, so instead of thinking about how we might therapeutically break down the system with the hopes of building it up, which isn't happening, we want to try and conserve instead. And so, so the first step is to, number one, identify the, you know, the patient's pa- pattern of signs and symptoms, um, understand their key symptoms because there's an entire constellation of things that are happening and everyone's uh, experience with post-exertional malaise will be different. Their, their most limiting system will be, uh, symptom will be different. Uh, how often it changes will be different uh, and so forth. So that's the first step. And then the second step really is to help them, cons- help them conserve energy through, through pacing, a pacing program. Um, and so we think that in the, in the early stages of helping people with these infection-associated chronic conditions, that less is more. That's how we sort of build a functional reserve of energy. That's how we improve people's uh, functional and sort of signs and symptoms associated with their, with their daily baselines. But PT is more is more. I mean, that's what it's turned into is just load it, right? Um, well, I've seen that. Yeah, you, you can't can't go wrong getting strong. Um, well, we're not touching people cool. anymore. We're just getting the squat out. That's all. We, like so now we're we're outside the contemporary I think comfort zone of a lot of PTs. But I'll I'll say this that um, these are competencies that are found in 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 areas outside of maybe orthopedic outpatient ambulatory uh, ambulatory care practices. So you you see you see um, energy conservation in neuro practices um, and um, in cardiopulmonary practices and so forth that go that, that often complement uh, exercise programs. But, you know, people have the sense that you can't just sort of grind the, you can't grind the patient to a pulp and expect them to want to come back. So uh, what we do then is instead of kind of putting an exercise approach side by side with a pacing approach, we just drop the exercise and use the pacing approach uh, until a person can have a stable, functional, acceptable daily baseline, uh, where we might reevaluate that, uh, in, in, in the future. And how long does that take? How do you know if you're at that point? Um, it's different for everyone. Um, Are you saying it depends? I'm saying it depends. I like everybody <laughs> who comes on this podcast has to say it depends at a minimum of three times. Well, I'll try and I'll try and do better than three times, but, um, I, I, I have this thing with my students where I, I challenge, I challenge my, myself and I, I have them challenge me that if I say it depends, they have to ask me what it depends on. So Tell here's, me. I'm going to take a stab at it. I think it depends on how long you've been sick. So um, there are some people who've been sick for 15 or 20 years before they're finally diagnosed, before they're finally, but before they finally sort of luck themselves into a clinician who understands this condition well enough to be able to provide competent help. Um, being crashed for 15 years <laughs> is is very difficult, obviously. Um, 
the my the optimist in me thinks that we might be catching folks uh, a little sooner who have COVID, uh, and maybe the, the the clinicians who are who are teaching pacing might be helping people kind of get out of and normalizing function a little sooner. Um, so yeah. I think I think illness duration kind of matters, you know. And I also think the depth and severity of these crashes also seems to make a difference. You know, I mean, the deeper and more severe your crashes, if you're if you're in bed and unable to digest because you have post-exertional malaise, obviously there are a whole different set of challenges with the ver- with very severe folks, severely involved folks who who constitute about 25% of at least people with myalgic encephalomyelitis. So then if you are able to be a little more functional, so just totally, totally sort of different uh, situation there. So you, you sort of know you're there when your patient tells you you're there, if that makes any sense. And so Working with this patient population involves a high degree of collaboration in which you have to let the patient lead. The patient will tell you um, how they are doing, how they are coming along with your pacing program, how they're coming along with other items that you may suggest uh, in order to help them conserve energy, support metabolism, support hemodynamic responses. And uh, you have to be ready for feedback because the patient will tell you if it's working or not. The, The last thing the person who's living with post-exertional malaise needs is a clinician who tells them what's good for them. Okay. That's hard. Well, that sort of gets away from this whole sense of uh, the clinician being in charge and um, you need to be sitting next to the patient rather than sitting sort of figuratively sitting in, in front of them. So that's, that's a, that's a competency in this area. And and it's an adjustment for a lot of people. And, and I think it's a, for some folks, it's, it may be, it may be harder than others, but definitely something that, that folks need. Interesting. Okay. So when would somebody with something like this come into the ED and how would we recognize that? So someone may come in with post-exertional malaise into the ED with uncontrolled palpitations, shortness of breath. They may come in with, uh, with a headache that won't go away. They may come in um, with uh, the appearance of, you know, of, of cognitive dysfunction, progressive cognitive dysfunction, that, that they're so brain fogged that it looks like dementia. So there's, there, there probably is not a reason that people won't come into the ED for that. Um, so that's, I think it's important to know that, that not only are, are there many routes of entry into the ED, but there's many routes of entry throughout healthcare. So, you know, people may present with weakness to neurology. Uh, people may come in with shortness of breath to pulmonology. People may come in with palpitations to cardiology. And so, to, you know, to be, to be alert to post-exertional malaise in, in, in these individuals is really important throughout healthcare. It's a, it, is a, it, is the comp, it is the core competency throughout healthcare that I think clinicians didn't know existed. What about like just a random diagnosis of failure to thrive? Absolutely. Uh, especially in people who who are more severely involved. Um, so there's there's lots of different there's lots of different reasons people may come to an ED, and the ED is really interesting because while I'm not an ED clinician, and I'm I'm grateful for you having me on, even though I'm not an ED clinician, and I'm grateful for your listeners for making it this this long, even though I'm not an ED clinician, is that ED is a place, in as much as an intersection, traffic intersection is a place. There are, you know, many clinicians and staff members that are there to sort of route folks back and forth. The ED is much more about where you're going (laughs) than where you're from. 
Have you been so, listening to my soapboxes on that? We're the people that get you on the right train and get you back out of the ED. I think there's a lot to that. And I think, I think because of that, EDs are naturally this hive of activity with lots of different clinicians and staff members that work with patients and many patients who need care because that's kind of how our, our healthcare system, such as, such as there is one, <laughs> is, is sort of, this is the ED is our primary care and our specialty care all rolled into one. Safety net for everyone. Yeah, and the safety net, you know, as well as providing uh, emergent care. So there's a lot going on. And the hard part about a lot going on it is that it can be, it is antithetical to being able to control the variables that you need in order to pace. Yes. Is the ED is a place of bright lights, lots of sounds, lots of activity, lots of social interaction. All of these things can promote post-exertional ways. So when a person comes in who has post-exertional malaise, they're automatically at a disadvantage because of what EDs do and kind of as a function of sort of who we need them to be. Well, I have a question about that. My job is to get them out. And if I'm asked to do a home safety evaluation for that patient and they're doing a horrible job and I'm like, hey, like they're not safe to go home. Is it potentially that they are safe to go home they're not safe in the ED based on what they have. And how can we like n- in a nuanced way differentiate between that? Cause I think about that a lot with like my patients with dementia who are like sundowning and they're in unfamiliar places. And I'm like, I'm sure your mobility is better where you are normally. Cause this is scary and unfamiliar. And I have a kid with some special needs who also gets overwhelmed in environments like this. And I just think if I tried to test his capabilities here right now, he would not succeed. So how do I make this important decision about whether you're safe to go home and not just say not safe to go home, we're going to send you to rehab from here? Because that's probably not the right choice either. Right. So what do we do? You know, my sense is being goal focused and goal oriented is is the important thing. People who come to the ED who have post-exertional malaise uh, the, that's the last place they want to go. <laughs> they don't want to be there. They're only there because they're concerned that, you know, there's something very severe happening that is that is out of control. And let me let me just say that with all of the unusual signs and symptoms that I just listed, people develop a sort of a tolerance for really weird, wild stuff that I think most of us who don't have post-exertional malaise would never tolerate. Like we would never tolerate a racing heartbeat for no apparent reason. We would never tolerate feeling physically just completely wiped because we had a, because we had a sandwich, you know, I, so there's a lot that the tolerance for folks is, you know, for folks as symptoms tends to be, tends to be pretty extreme. So they don't want to be there. And I would say that the, as, as long as their, their needs are being met in terms of, you know, the validation that, you know, they're, whatever their concern was, is being addressed. That I think that's the first piece. Okay. I don't really see people with post-exertional malaise having significant, um, you know, safety issues, safety issues in the home, in the ED that, that would require them to, you know, may, maybe be, be hospitalized or, you know, sent to a rehab facility. Most of the time, you know, folks are, are, are dizzy they're having poor control of their heart rate. And so just having a good supportive plan to address that symptom in that moment is helpful. So like 
do something, for example, that that would would take up a bed for a while um, and maybe a while longer than 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 folks would would be comfortable with, like hang a liter of saline. You know, that will help a person who's having a problem with, you know, their orthostatic um, tachycardia syndrome. Um, that's not something that I think a lot of people in the ED would really want to do because it's it's pretty 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 low pretty low it's considered fairly low value it takes up a bed you know takes up space and time but that's what people need you know the other thing that could be really helpful for folks is to make sure their pain is controlled i think people with post exertional malaise they have uh, they have distress and they have a worse a worsen and worsen symptoms and signs because a lot of them are in pain um, and so making sure that the pain is under, under good control, they're not drug seeking, you know, but if you, if you're in pain, uh, and that's part of your post-exertional symptom pattern, because it feels like worse than running a marathon because you made yourself a bowl of soup, then, you know, you, you kind of have to think about this patient population differently. You have to make sure their needs are supported. And I, I know that that this is, this is, this is hard for EDs because that's not how EDs are set up. Yes. Uh, but to have a room where it's quiet and darker, what? <laughs> you're right. Where people can lay down because their hemodynamic responses are best in supine, you know? So again, you can see where people, you know, in the ED uh, who have post-exertional malaise, they, they don't want to be there because yeah. those, those services and resources just aren't available. So to zoom out a little bit, is just recognizing that these folks exist, that there's like more than 20 million people living with this condition at this point, because we take the 4 million that we had from, from before the, the COVID-19 pandemic, and we add them to the maybe 17 million that, that we've created as a, so, uh, as a part of how we've handled the COVID-19 pandemic. And we realize that there are a lot of people out there who have these needs. And then we sort of commit to having a plan. The plan involves screening screening for for post-exertional malaise and then and then having having the resources allocated to being able to take adequate care of people both in terms of developing clinical practices and guidelines in the ed uh, as well as thinking about the overall environment of sort of how the ed conducts its business i think that makes sense and i think we're good people to advocate for that because our job again is to get patients out of the ED. And if we can make some environmental changes to help improve people's function, then I think that's a good way to do that. So from listening to you, I feel like I'm gonna tell you what I think my approach would be and you tell me where I'm going wrong. First step, make somebody as comfortable as possible by decreasing as much stress and unnecessary stimulus. Second, taking a really good history that involves more listening than telling and asking, believing them and validating what they're telling me, and then help them feel safe enough to tell us what they feel like they need so that we can support those needs and get them home. Great set of takeaways. Absolutely. And I think if every ED did that, that would increase the quality of service for people with post-exertional malaise exponentially. So what do I do if I think I have a patient that has that? Where do I send them? Like, Because that's another part of my job, to make appropriate referrals. If it's not me, I'm not the person. Who is the person? 
Yeah, I mean, and that's a very good question because we've been we've been working for a number of years, and that that work has accelerated obviously during the uh, COVID nineteen pandemic to get clinicians up to speed on how how to support people who are living with with this these infection associated you know chronic conditions. The um, the list of knowledgeable referral sources is is unfortunately relatively low, but I think getting to know people in your local area. Uh, in your local insurance networks makes the most sense. Okay. Um, and so you kind of have to do some asking around to find out who has competencies and interests in this area. I also think uh, it's important to develop um, some informational uh, handouts, not necessarily even for patients, but just for them to take to to their clinicians. So they're the next person to whom they're referred. Um, so if you're if you're working with someone who's going to go home uh, to an area where there isn't a clinician who's knowledgeable, um, you might develop an informational set of resources that that patient can then turn around and hand that clinician, which can help out a lot. There are some resources through the um, United States uh, ME Clinicians Coalition uh, on their website uh, and through their publications. I feel like there there are some good resources that are available through Long COVID Physio, yes? Absolutely, through Long COVID Physio. Uh, some great video resources that have been translated into multiple languages that can help. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the patient-led research collaborative has some, has some great resources as well. Um, and so lot, lots of resources in the ME space and in the Long COVID space to be able to assist both uh, patients and, uh, and clinicians. I think that's really helpful. And if you're, if you have, if there's a therapist listening right now, that's like, I want to learn more about this. I want to be the person at my facility that's like leading the change in this area. Where, where would you suggest that they go to get started? Cause I'm, I'm guessing there's not like a lot of continuing ed on this. The, there's, there's some, um, some, there's some, some good continuing education through, um, certainly starting with long COVID physios, YouTube, uh, site would be an excellent place for people to start. There's some, some, short videos that really break down complicated concepts that are, that are sort of, um, entry, entry level. Um, there are, there are some, some, um, some programming on MedBridge related to ME and long COVID, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I did, I did a lot of that work, uh, that, that can be helpful. Uh, and then also, um, I would say, uh, that there's some work being done through, uh, a partnership between the Bateman Horn Center and open medical, uh, foundation uh, that's also up on, I believe, YouTube. Uh, that that if you if you if you Google Bateman Horn, uh, there's lots of great informational videos. Uh, and then watch this space in 2024. I'm working through small mentoring groups for clinicians as well, so I'll get the word out about that uh, through uh, what's called Workwell Health. Shout out also to my my colleagues at the Workwell Foundation, uh, who have some excellent resources uh, and recorded lectures related to uh, the physiology of post-exertional malaise. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So just to wrap it up, what's like, what's your parting thought for people to take away from this? My parting thought is, um, is that I think, I think post-exertional malaise challenges, um, us clinicians to be, to be different. Um, and that we need to embrace that challenge to be different instead of fight against it, uh, so that we can work to provide better, uh, evaluation and care for our patients. Perfect. Thank you so much for being on the show. You've been in the ED now and you're officially discharged. Thank you. I appreciate that.
Thank you for listening. In the ED Now is a podcast hosted and produced by Rebecca Griffith, the ED DPT, as part of Rebecca Griffith Physical Therapy, LLC. Our podcast makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. This podcast is intended for educational use only and is not intended as clinical or medical advice. While we make every effort for accuracy, factual errors may be present. Since you've been in the ED, I'm prepared to give you your discharge instructions. Please subscribe, share, and find more at the eddpt.com. You're officially discharged.